Girl Ties Life podcast, where we show you that women are capable of incredible things when they put in some serious effort. My name is Victoria Smith. I'm your host, and I help women reduce their stress so that they can live their most vibrant lives. Currently, you can find all the kind of work that I do over at girltrieslife.com, but I want to tell you about today's guest, Jaquette Timmons. Jaquette is a financial behaviorist who I learned about through our very first guest on the podcast, Stephanie Pollock. So Jaquette is someone who provides direct but unbiased coaching and advice to accomplished professionals across the income and wealth spectrums. She designs and delivers workshops and keynotes and participates in all kinds of panels for corporations, nonprofits, and conferences that explore a variety of money and intersections. So if you go to Jaquette's website, and which I've linked to in today's show notes, she has this thing called the financial wheel, which is an exercise that's designed to help you make better financial choices today and in the future. It was such a fascinating exercise for me, and we, we talk about it all throughout the podcast episode, so you can you can hear more about that. But it's a really interesting way to look at money that I've never seen put quite in that way before. So Jaquette and I talk about our money stories, and what kinds of habits or beliefs she had about money that she carried through to her adult life. We talk about why so many North Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and what are the tangible steps that people and women in particular can take now to get out of those kinds of scenarios. We also talk about how to decrease stress around money. We talk about some of the actions and habits that she recommends in order to decrease that kind of stress the importance of the financial wheel, which we've already touched on. And for any of the entrepreneurs that are listening, we talk about her financial advice for those that are looking to start a business during these kind of economic times. Now, Jaquette has also written a book called Financial Intimacy. So it's a movement created to explore the intersection of love and money, a movement designed to help you understand how you work with money in the context of romantic relationships, family obligations, cultural influences, and career, political, and economic realities. In other words, it's a movement about money and life. Now, I am giving away a signed copy of Jaquette's book, Financial Intimacy, to one of our listeners in North America. Here's the deal. If you want to enter to win a copy of this book, you're only going to be able to enter if you are a subscriber to my newsletter because this Saturday, my newsletter subscribers will be receiving information on how they can enter to win a copy of this book. It is honestly such a phenomenal book. It gets really great ratings over on Goodreads and Amazon. I highly recommend this book. So if you want to sign up for my newsletter, I've got the link directly in the show notes for today. You can find it on my Instagram at Girl Tries Life and whatever the show description is that whatever device you're listening on here today will have a link on how to sign up for my newsletter. And then as of Saturday, you will get the information on how to let me know you're interested in being one of the potential winners of this book. So if you want to improve your relationship with money and your significant other, I highly recommend that you check out this book. So the Girl Choice Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. So of course, this is the moment that my crazy cats decide that they're having their witching hour. 
and I can't seem to make them shut up. So you might just hear a little bit of that in the background. Now I want to let you know about one of the podcasts affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network, which is called Let's Do Coffee. So it's an extension of the excellent work that is done by the Maji Center for New Venture and Student and Entrepreneurship at Nate. So every entrepreneur has a story to tell, lessons learned, and wisdom earned. So this is a podcast geared towards entrepreneurs. I highly recommend you check out episode number two. So this this is where they interviewed Kyle, Gang- Kyle Gagnon, a local entrepreneur with a passion for virtual reality. So Kyle is focusing on bringing an educational application to virtual reality, and he shares the experience he's gathered from his entrepreneurial journey thus far. So if you want to learn more, I encourage you to go to letsdocoffee.libsyn.com. Now, if you're brand new and you're listening for the first time today, and you haven't heard, the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. So there is something for every listener under the sun. We've got business and entertainment and arts and culture and marketing and sports and all the good things, stories and storytelling. What I want to talk to you about today is the Modern Manhood podcast. I'm a huge fan of the work that they do. I actually want to point you to some of their most recent episodes. Uh, there, I mean, there's so many good ones to to talk about, but episode number 67, I'm Afraid of Men, A Conversation with Vivek Shraya, is about an award-winning artist who has published many books before, but her newest book titled I'm Afraid of Men explores how masculinity was imposed on her as a boy and continues to haunt her as a girl and how we might reimagine gender for the 21st century. So it was such a great episode and I highly recommend you check it out. I will link to it in today's show notes, which can be found at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash 88 for episode number 88. So again, Basically, all the information we've talked about today, including how to enter this contest for financial intimacy, the two podcasts that we've just talked about, all of that can be found in today's show notes at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash 88. Now, without further ado, I'm so excited to head to the interview with Jaquette. Well, thank you so much, Jaquette, for joining us on the podcast. We're so pleased to have you. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So I kind of want to start with your money story because everyone has a money story from, you know, their life growing up and what habits they've that have maybe carried into their adult life. What's your money story? Oh, my goodness. I think two things uh, are probably indicative of how I am right now. So my mother taught me how to balance a checkbook when I was 13. (laughs) Yeah. So I've known how to do that for quite some time. And my mother was ridiculous when it came to saving. So, you know, she didn't know much about investing. I didn't learn that until I got to graduate school. But in terms of the discipline of investing, that is definitely something that I got from her and only wish I had continued as, you know, vigilantly as she had taught because when I was growing up, whether it was babysitting money or money from working in the mall, I always had to save 50% of my check. And her rationale was, why do you need any, anything more than that? Yeah. <laughs> you're 14, you know. You know, exactly. You're 14, you're 15, you're 16. Yeah. Everything else is covered. So, like, you know, 
So anyway, just that that discipline of recognizing that just because you make a dollar, that entire dollar is not just for you. And some of that goes for saving. Some of that goes for giving uh, philanthropy and things of that nature. So those are the things from my childhood that shaped my money story. Yeah. I, I heard in an interview you were saying your mother was a singer. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So, so it's yeah. interesting having that sort of artistic side, but also the very like diligent about saving and being very clear with her checkbooks and everything like that. Like she had both oh, sides yeah. of her brain firing. Totally, totally. And it was so funny because, you know, my mother has since passed. She died in August of 2014. And as I was, you know, cleaning out her house and going through things, I actually found a ledger from 1972. Oh, wow. And I just cherish this thing because I'm like, oh, my God, now I really understand where I get stuff from. And, uh, you know, again, my mother was a professional musician and all that other kind of stuff. But she had a ledger that outlined what her expenses were, how much she needed to be reimbursed from her agent. Like she had all of this catalog. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's where the fastidiousness comes from. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I recently, when I was on your website, I completed the financial wheel, which uh, we're going to link to in the show notes because it's such a really interesting exercise that you've created. So I'm hoping you can explain to our audience a little bit about what the financial wheel is and why it's important. So the financial wheel um, gives you an opportunity to take a look at the four major areas of your financial life earning, saving, investing, and spending. And for most of us, we've been conditioned to live our lives that we make decisions about how we are going to save, invest, and spend based upon what we earn. I call that living by default. We've been doing that for generations. For some of us, it works really, really well. For others, not so. By doing the financial wheel exercise the way I walk people through it, what I'm inviting them to do is to actually say, this is how much I want to save. This is how I want to invest my money and even expand what investing means. This is how I want to spend my money. This is the lifestyle that I want. And based upon that, that then leads to the question of, well, what do I need to make that happen? And it's a subtle shift in the way in which you're asking the how question, but I think it has huge impact on how you approach the decisions that you make, the choices that you make, the trade-offs that you make. And the thing that I think is so important about it is that it gives you an opportunity, if you really embrace and step into my walkthrough, it gives you an opportunity to create your financial vision and not just be so steeped in what you can do right now with your money. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Well, because you're a financial behaviorist, so all of this is uh, coming from your your beliefs and your hopes and uh, that structure around money. As you're saying, it did when I did the exercise. It kind of had me think a little bit differently. Of if this is what I want, let's work backwards. Then what do I need to do to make it happen? As opposed to that, this is what my paycheck is. How do I budget what I have? Exactly. It's 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 almost like applying reverse engineering and project management skills to your money. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard back from people that have done it, like the difference that it's made? 
Oh yeah, totally. And I've had people tell me that they make it a part of their annual exercise. They do it every year. Some people tell me that they do it whenever there's a major change in their life, whether that be a marriage, a divorce, a child, a new promotion. So people definitely, you know, share back with me the profound impact of the exercise. And in a way, I think it is quote unquote simple, but I think in its simplicity lies the profundity. Yeah, absolutely. You were saying there's the four areas, the earn, invest, spend, and save. Now, I would imagine Canada is pretty similar to to America in terms of, of savings. And a recent report that I had found by CNBC said that you know, 56% of Americans are saving less than $100 per month. And about half are li- mm-hmm. like, or 46% of those are living paycheck to paycheck. And like, and there's other mm-hmm. reports that state that are that's so much higher. So how do you even advise individuals that are in, in those scenarios? Like, what are the tangible steps they can do to get out of that scenario? Well, I think there are a number of layers to that question. Yeah. So on the on the personal front, I think it is, you know, perhaps doing an assessment of where exactly is your money going? Is it going where you think it is going? And is it going where you think it is going in the proportion that you think it is going? Mm-hmm. So what's what's going on with your spending? The other thing that I think is adjusting one's mindset to embrace the fact that a little is better than nothing. So some people will discount, well, I can only save a dollar. I'm being a little facetious, but and some, some people have said, well, it's not a lot of money, so why bother? Mm-hmm. And my whole point is, if you think of $2.74 every single day for a year, that's $1,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And so it helps to reframe this whole idea that a little is insignificant because it's not. So in some instances, people need to look at their spending. In other instances, people need to um, give more credence to starting out small and building up. Mm-hmm. But I think we also can't escape the fact or ignore the fact that people's wages, for those that work as employees in any way, people's wages have not necessarily increased to the extent that expenses have. Yeah. So some people do indeed legitimately are having a hard time um, saving. And I don't say that as an excuse to not try to figure out how can you do both, because I'm, I'm all about both and rather than either or. But I think sometimes in a lot of those articles that you might read that spout those statistics, it comes with a heavy hand around personal responsibility. And I certainly agree that that's a part of the solution. But if you exclude from the conversation what needs to happen from a policy standpoint or how companies are approaching paying people, then you're really not really addressing the issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I, at least I know in the city that I live in, in Calgary, we've gone through a huge economic downturn with, you know, the price of oil dropping and, and so many people losing their jobs. And, you know, what you once thought your financial picture looked like, you know, you used to maybe have the hundred, $150,000 a year job. So you had a lifestyle that matched that. And then people are really struggling right now to even you know, pay their mortgage if they can't find another job to go to. Right. And I think the other thing, and and, the, and it can be a little shock to one system, is that when you have a dip, so maybe you are making that $150,000 salary and you lose your job and, you know, rebounding is not happening as quickly. 
I have had clients who have found themselves in the situation where they haven't adjusted their lifestyle to their new financial reality. Yeah. So I do think that there, you know, there's that piece of, to the equation as well. So if you, if you are paying attention and even if you have this sense, oh, it's not going to happen to me or it's not going to happen to us. If you're paying attention to what is happening and begin to at least prepare yourself for the possibility. Because I think the other thing is maybe it's a human nature thing, but we have this tendency to believe that if we, if we do worst case scenario planning, well, then we're planning for where we are inviting the worst. And I think that that's the exact opposite. If you entertain, well, what could possibly be the worst? Then that gives you an opportunity to get ahead of it and put a plan in place that says, if this does happen, these are the steps that I'm going to take. And then every time, you know, that fear raises its head, you can say, I got a plan, yeah. you know, be quiet. <laughs> yeah. Pipe down, you. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm curious and like full disclosure, I haven't finished reading the book yet, but like in terms of finance, uh, you have this phenomenal book, Financial Intimacy. Do you like when you're talking worst case scenario, do you ever talk about planning for what if the marriage doesn't work out? Because then your now, finances just. Yeah, I, I, so I will admit I haven't done that. Okay. <laughs> I haven't done that, but I do think that, you know, having people engage in conversations around transparency and disclosure is one way of getting at that. Cause there are some people who, you know, are in a relationship and they have absolutely no idea what the, uh, their partner earns, husband, wife, whomever. They have no idea what's going on with the money because they've completely abdicated all responsibility of it to someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, that's not healthy in general, but it is certainly not healthy if the relationship is uh, in trouble. Well, and I just like the statistics of gray divorce, you know, divorce in your 50s, 60s, 70s are just skyrocketing. And yeah, I can only imagine what uh, what a shock that is to to many people's financial situations. Yes. And especially if one of them and more typically it's it's the woman woman it has been the one that has stayed at home and hasn't been earning and now has to take on a level of responsibility for not just earning money, but also then managing it in a way that she never had to before and probably, you know, for 30 years or more. Yeah. So just circling back to like a little to save is better than nothing. Where does invest then come in? Like is invest something you can only really do if you're saving a certain amount? No, I think, um, so there are two things. I think today, i.e. meaning 2018, 21st century, there are so many more options for investing than, you know, say in 1986, when I started my career in financial services. So you don't need a lot today to invest, whereas you did before. So one thing is if you do work as an employee uh, in the States, we have here a 401k, I think you guys call it an RSP. Yeah. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. So if you work as an employee, then by all means, take advantage of, of that and make sure that you are investing. And if you can invest the maximum, at least do something and, and, and begin to work your way up to being able to invest the maximum per year. So that's one way of investing. And that also happens to be a particular kind of investing, i.e. tax deferred, because you're not paying taxes on that right now and it reduces your taxable income right yeah. now. 
But other things that you can do is actually have a brokerage firm uh, or have a brokerage account, I should say, where you are able to invest on your own, either directly into individual stocks or into mutual funds. And my caveat is that if you are going to do stocks, that number one, you do a little bit of uh, research, you come up with a buy discipline, you come up with a sell discipline, and perhaps you only limit your individual stock purchases to those that reflect the products and services that you use. So if you have a car that's made by General Motors, then maybe you will have General Motors stock because it makes sense because you own that kind of a car. If you have a lot of household products that are made by Procter & Gamble, then it would make sense that you would have that as an individual stock. But otherwise, I think the wisest thing to do is to just have mutual funds because somebody else is then making the determination around what the stock should be in that. And also you're getting diversification to a degree that you would never be able to do on your own unless you've got millions and millions of dollars behind you. Yeah. So my takeaway from that is, especially as someone on mat leave who is sleep deprived, that I should be investing in Starbucks. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That company has made a lot of money off of me. Oh my God. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. So I'm curious, you don't just work with women, you work with women and men, but do you see a difference in their financial behavioral patterns? I don't. What I will say is what research says is that from an investing standpoint, women tend to do better. And that's mostly because women are, uh, tend to be anyway, buy and hold, whereas men tend to be more traders. So, you know, they're buying it and they're selling it and they're basing it on whatever their factors are for making that. But when you do a lot of trading, there's a lot of there's a lot more volatility associated with doing a lot of trading as opposed to buying and holding. So from a research standpoint, there is that gender difference. When I think about the clients with whom I work, I have been I have coached couples where The woman has been the one that's, you know, more on top of it financially and the husband is more laissez-faire and could care less and then also vice versa. So it really all depends. But what I do find very interesting is that for the majority of the couples with whom I've worked, it is the man who reached out to me and not the wife. Interesting. Very so we, we actually did a survey for our listeners, and in terms of, it was all around stress and how people were, were experiencing stress in their lives. And not surprisingly, you know, most people have some or high stress around money. But in, mm-hmm. in your experience, like, what is the stress point about money? Is it, like, in general, is it, is it the fear of saving for retirement? Like, what are the biggest things people are concerned about? Well, I think the, the first immediate thing is earning, right? Yeah. Um, are you earning enough? So the ability to live beyond paycheck to paycheck. And then if you own a business, <laughs> that can extend to the ability to live beyond client to client. So earning is one stress and, and that whole notion of being able to maintain or sustain your lifestyle and even perhaps do a little bit more. So that's one type of stress. There's the stress of saving, wondering whether or not you are saving enough. How much should you you save? And I think part of the challenge that people have when I ask them to do the financial wheel exercise, especially as it pertains to saving, is none of us know the future. And yet 
a lot of the decisions that we have to make have to take into account this future that is somewhat abstract. So there's stress around, will I have enough? And that it's connected to investing as well, because then it's like, well, am I investing in the right way? Or will I outlive my money? Or, you know, I'm in my fifties and maybe I'm going to work for another 20, 30 years, but what after that? And, and with lifespan being so much longer today than it has been in the past, you know, people, I don't think can just think about planning for retirement. I think they need to think of that as a milestone that's reached. And it's really planning for what's my life going to be like in one decade, another decade, another decade, and another decade. And that can be really stressful trying to figure that out. Oh, by the way, while you also manage your current day-to-day responsibilities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With your magic crystal ball of what the future looks like. Exactly. Exactly. And then I think the other big stressor is debt, whether it's consumer debt, whether it is, you know, education debt, whether it's mortgage debt, you know, and I really do believe that for the most part, um, and I don't have any scientific proof to back me up on this, but I really do believe that for the most part, when people go into debt, they go into it with the full intention of A, being able to pay it off and B, it being an easy, an easy thing to do. And something happens. Either they lose their job, they don't get a raise, you know, they don't get a bonus or something happens to disrupt that plan and the stress of trying to address the fact that their plan has been interrupted and how do they do that and how do they do that while staying on track and staying at least on time um, so that they don't get behind. So I think that that's another stressor as well. So how do you address those, like the changes in, in your life plans? Is that sitting down with the financial wheel or a financial advisor? I think it can be a combination of both. You know, I think one of the things that people think tend to think or they, they behave in this way, although I do believe on a very cellular level, they know it's not true. And that is they tend to think that money is static and it's not. And, and nor is your relationship with money. And, and often when I do workshops, I have this particular visual that I use to help illustrate that a money is one of the relationships that will be with you the longest <laughs> next to your parents. Probably it yeah. is the longest thing that you will have a relationship with. And I, I highlight that from the standpoint of getting people to understand that the relationship that you had with money five years ago is different than the relationship that you have t- today because your context has changed, your circumstances have changed, and therefore it's going to also be different five, year, five years hence. And I don't think people give themselves the space to really think about how do I need to adjust my behavior, my choices, my expectations, the things that I'm willing to trade off based upon what I'm dealing right now. I think oftentimes decisions that are made based upon how either people want them to be or how their circumstances were five years ago when the whole picture has changed, like they haven't caught up to Mm -hmm. that reality. Are there certain, for you, red flag beliefs or behaviors that like if you see them, those need to change right now? Well, one, certainly, you know, if people don't look at their statements, yeah. <laughs> I, I look at that as you are avoiding a truth. And I think also what goes along with that is there's this false sense of knowledge, meaning 
mostly everything now is automated. You can carry your entire financial life on your phone at this juncture. Yeah. And the idea that you get the notification that your statement is ready and you just like, yeah, okay. But you don't actually look at it. You don't review it. Or even if you're the kind of person that, you know, goes online and you look at your banking transactions every day just to kind of do a, you know, quick view to make sure, yeah, 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 that makes sense. People miss mistake having that level of access to their information with also having insight around what that information is actually telling them. So I think the first red flag is if people are not opening their statements, if they're not reviewing their statements, that's an issue. Uh, another red flag, if people are abstract. So often people will say to me, oh, I want to save more. Well, what does more mean? Does more mean a dollar? Does more mean a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars? And then within what time frame? So another red flag would be people that resist coming up with a number because they want to be right. And my whole thing is it's not about accuracy. It's about clarity. And if you are at least able to say, I want to come, you know, I want to save ten thousand dollars then at least that gives you something to reverse engineer yourself back into. And if you realize when you go through the process on paper, oh, this can't happen, it helps you to see then what adjustments do you need to make so that you increase the possibility of it happening. So that's the other. Another red flag is when people work with an advi a financial advisor that they don't like. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait a second, <laughs> it's your money. And yes, you are hiring them for their expertise. And that's a really great, awesome thing, but it's still your money. So you should never abdicate your responsibility of it to someone else. And darn sure you shouldn't do it for someone that you don't like or that you don't feel respects you. And that often comes, comes up again in couples where they're working with an advisor and they feel like the advisor talks more in most, the most of the instances that I've heard, they feel like the advisor talks more to the husband than to them. Mm -hmm. Why are you still working with them? Another red flag would be around spending. Either you spend without abandon and you have like you've given your money no purpose. So you don't know where the money is going or why. Or on the flip side, you don't spend. And that's another form of hoarding in my in my estimation. And then and as you'll notice, we've gone around the wheel. Another red flag would be if you don't ask for a raise, if you don't ask for the promotion, if you don't ask for the business, like if you're just so gun shy about your right to ask, no one has the right to say yes, but you have every right to ask. And if you don't ask, you'll never know where your line or your new line could be. So those are all of the different red flags that I see. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And the, when you're talking about clarity around goals, like I know you've got your feed the meter guide. What I found really interesting about the description of that is it is taking those sort of vague goals and making them very specific and clear. And to, to me, having more clarity does help decrease your stress. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that people tend to do when it comes to goals is they don't factor in the financial component of it because almost every goal you have is going to have a financial aspect attached to it. And then not, not only the money part, we don't think about the habitual piece that needs to change as well. Yeah. So I'll, I'll use, you know, running as an example. Um, and I think you mentioned that you were a runner or maybe that was one of your guests on your podcast. Cause I listened okay. to, but okay. I couldn't remember. Yeah. 
But anyway, um, I am a runner. And so, you know, if I am training for a half marathon, it's not just enough for me to increase my miles, right? I need to think about how I'm eating in general. I need to think about sleeping. I need to think about, oh, I can't have that glass of wine, you know, at dinner as I'm getting closer to the race because it just weighs me down. Yeah. To me, those are a concatenation of habits that are going to help me across the finish line strong. And I think sometimes when it comes to our goals, A, we don't think about the financial component to it. And then B, we don't think about all of the different habits that that goal requires to make it come to fruition. Well, and sometimes it's a lot of work to figure that out. And I think that also, I mean, just deters people. Like, this is just a personal aside, but my husband and I really have this dream and goal of taking our kids to travel for like a semester of school when they're older. And I know Mm -hmm. that's going to come with a big, like I'm still trying to figure out how much that's going to cost in terms of, you know, rent while you're gone, like let alone the cost of actually going. And it's, but to be very specific about planning for it, like I need to know all those things. So it's, it's a process. It is a process. And I think for those things, like what you've described, Another thing that is helpful is to have a range or to do scenario planning, right? So, you know, just to throw out a number, you know, what does it look like if it's $10,000? What does it look like if it's 15? What does it look like if it's 20? And I think, again, that's something that we kind of shy away from. And I think another red flag is, is tied to that. And that is, you know, how often do you keep pushing money to the the back burner and just, you know, have it be the thing that you get to when you get to it, or you only think about it when there's an emergency or you only think about it when there's a big ticket item to be purchased. And, you know, why do you give more time to other things and only SOS time to your money? (laughs) Yeah. Given how much it influences everything else. So um, my pushback, you know, for folks that are like, I don't want to do that. It's too much work. I'm like, well, there is an opportunity cost there for that. And, you know, if you take the time, it it may take an hour, but that hour is going to gain, it's going to give you so much more on the other end. Yeah, for sure. So I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit because a lot of listeners and a lot of guests that we've had on the podcast are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so if, whether you are an entrepreneur or looking to become an entrepreneur, it's not even just your beliefs around your feasibility of your business, but you know, concerns about how you're going to finance that business, how you're going to like are taking financial risk for you and your family. What kind of advice do you have for those that are looking to start their, their businesses? A number one advice is it's always going to take longer than you expect. Yep. <laughs> and it's going to cost more than you expect. Yeah. Um, so plan on that. So whatever the number is that you're coming up with in terms of how much it's going to take to get it off the ground, I think to be on the safe side, double or triple that. Oh, wow. Um, So that's, there's that. I think the other thing is if you are in a relationship, make sure that you have the buy-in from your partner. And that can be by sharing with them your business plan, your financial projections, giving them a sense of, what impact your growing this business is going to have on the family, even if it's just the family of two, what impact that's going to have and what's going to be the questions that you ask yourself quarterly that either are signals that, yes, we should keep going or that say we need to pivot 
or that say, you know what, we need to wrap this up. So I think the, the clearer you are, at least about what questions you ought to be asking and considering, and you present them to the other person, the more support you'll be able to get from that person. Because there is no business that will be able to just have a straight trajectory upward and making sure that you have an idea of what might be your blind spots and what might, you know, serve as the valley moment yeah. <laughs> is a really good thing to do. The other thing is to have a little more clarity or I guess it depends on where you are in your process, but to be clear about the relationship between your business model, your sales, your sales process, and your personal finances. One of the things that I learned the hard way, and now I teach with every single entrepreneurial coaching client with whom I work, is that yes, your business, you created your business to do whatever it is that reflects your body of work. But two, you've also created it to for your business to help you create wealth, however it is that you define wealth. A part of that is that it also then needs to be able to help you achieve your personal financial goals. And a lot of times when people are starting businesses, the only thing that's thought of is the business. How do I get the business up and running? How do I make the business profitable? How do I make the business cash flow positive? All of that is absolutely necessary. But another part of that question or another part of that equation, I should say, ought to also be where does the financial wheel fit into this picture? And how am I making sure that the business decisions that I am making are also factoring in the financial wheel pieces that I need to have it address? So do you do a financial wheel for for a business as well? Like the inter instead of earn, like what the revenue would be? So not necessarily a financial wheel for the business, but I, I have my entrepreneurial clients do the financial wheel for their personal finances mm -hmm. so that they have an idea of what the number ought to be in terms of how much the business needs to also spew to them personally. Yeah. Because it's not just about, you know, because sometimes you're not even paying yourself or you're not even paying yourself on a regular basis. But when in those instances, when you do, you're likely just paying yourself whatever it is you need to get by your yeah. mortgage, your rent, your, your your other bills. Right. But you're not also thinking about, oh, I need to continue personally saving. I need to continue personally setting aside money for retirement, whether that's in a rollover or whatever. And I think we get so caught up in the startup mode that we don't forget at some point we have to get out of startup mode and make sure that that business is feeding us in a healthier way. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So the, before we move into our five questions that I ask all of our guests, but I'm just curious, is there any piece of sort of financial advice or wisdom that you, you wish more people knew about or you wish was talked about more and we just, we never hit it? I, I, I think... The thing that I wished more people embraced was really recognizing that success with money is not just about the dollars and the cents. If it were, we would be having a different kind of conversation because I'd probably be in a different kind of work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, two plus two is going to always equal four. The equation of wealth is always going to be own more than what you owe. But clearly, 
if it were that simple, a lot more people would, you know, have much more stable financial lives. A lot more people would be wealthier. And I think, and, and our industry has done a disservice in this regard. It's, it, 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 it encourages people to focus on the mechanics, to focus on the things that you can easily count. And it kind of discounts the aspects of money that you can't easily see, that you can't easily count, but that have just as much of an impact. And those things are your values, your beliefs, your expectations, your fears, your concerns, as well as the things that excite you, you know, the things that are, are reflective of your dreams and your aspirations. And I think what I wish is that there were more conversations that looked at that part of the equation as being a strategic part of the conversation and not a woo-woo part of the conversation and gave that just as much credence as they do, do two and two add up to four. Well, and it's so critical because in any aspect of your life, your beliefs determine your behaviors. And so right. if we're not tackling that, maybe sort of, you know, beliefs we've harbored from from growing up or from, from certain situations that have happened in our life, then we're, you, yeah, you are doing a disservice to your financial life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're doing a service, a disservice to your life, right? Because you can't, and I guess that would be another thing. I, I know for uh, conversational purposes, culturally, we have a tendency to, you know, bifurcate everything. There's personal life and professional life. There's financial life and non-financial life. And there are times when it is helpful to see those those as distinct. But at the end of the day, they're always interdependent. There's always an intersection. And so, you know, any decision that you make in any financial area of your life is going to have a ripple effect on the other areas. And similarly, any decision that you make regarding your finances is going to have some impact on some domain of your personal life, whether that's your career, your family, your social life, your spiritual life, maybe your intellectual life. And similarly, any decision that you make in any one of those domains is likely to have an impact on some aspect of of what you choose to do with your money. So I understand the need to kind of have distinct conversations, but the overlay needs to be that these are all interconnected and interdependent. And maybe once we've had the conversation that helps us get the clarity individually, we can then have a conversation around the, the impact of whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. Well, I know you've got me thinking a little differently and thinking that I need to be, like you were saying, spending more time aware of your money compared to, you know, just waiting until the bills come in or all that kind of stuff. So right. I appreciate this conversation. No, Thank you yay. so much. Thank so, you. So the five questions that I ask all of our guests, the first thing is this doesn't have to, this could be professional, this could be personal, but what are the things or the projects that get you really fired up in a good way? Oh my goodness. So um, I am geeking out this year because two things are going really well. Um, I am doing a multi-city workshop tour for a law firm and I'm and that's six cities across the U.S. And then I'm doing a similar uh, five city tour for another organization. So this whole idea of 
touring (laughs) for a firm and especially a law firm is really cool. And then this is also the second year of me hosting the comfort circle dinners where we get together to talk about money, business and life over food and wine. And, um, I'm just really, really enjoying hosting them, coming up with the content. And I'm really geeked about how well received they are. So those are the things that have me fired up right now. Yeah. And so we'll link to those for any of our listeners who are in the New York area. They, they would be fantastic. And I, sorry, it just occurs to me, your mother toured for singing and you're touring for finance. So you're both experiencing the touring life. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you for making that connection. Yes. (laughs) So I don't, I don't know if you're a, a, a lover of books, but what's the most inspiring book you've read in the past few years? Oh my God. Um, I, I am a lover of books. I sadly have not been reading as much as I typically do, but I think the book that I, I'm going to say I enjoyed the most, but it made me mad. And so maybe that's a good thing. (laughs) Um, And that's Americana. And I always have a hard time pronouncing her name unless I actually see it. So let me walk over to my bookshelf and get it out so I can have it in front of me so I can properly pronounce her name. And it is Chimananda Ngoze Adichie. And she's a Nigerian uh, author. And this was my second book of hers that I read. The first one was Half of a Yellow Sun, which I absolutely adored um and then this is one that i read last year oh fantastic what was it about it you loved so i i loved that it explored both african both the african and the african-american experience in the u.s and wove in the impact of class and privilege in a way that I don't think is typically talked about in American literature. And I, my frustration were the choices that the protagonist, some of the choices that the protagonist made. And the reason why I say it made me mad, but I think it might be good, is that it also made me think, well, huh, if someone were writing a book about your life, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they examined all the choices, somebody might be pissed about your yeah. choices too. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. So it, it, it gives you a lot to talk about. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah. In hindsight, or as the reader of a book, right? You're like, well, I would act differently. You're like, but would I? Would I? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. It's always easy to take the high ground when it's A, not your story, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite quote or words that you live by? Oh my goodness. So if I can share two, absolutely. Um, one would be Joseph Campbell's everything begins with a story. Yeah. I open every workshop with that. And, and it's a way to get people to understand that when we're going through the workshop, what we're really doing is exploring the story of them and their money. Yeah. So I love that. Um, I also love uh, Soren Kierkegaard's, and I may botch it, but the whole essence of it is you live life moving forward, but you understand it looking backward. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. 
What's the best life lesson you've learned or advice that you've been given? Oh my God, so many. Well, because this is fresh on my mind, because I was actually telling someone else about it recently, I am, uh, although I'd have to probably get recertified because it's been a while, but I am a certified scuba diver. And I was sharing the story of doing my checkout dives, which includes or involves doing seven open water dives. My first one went really well. My second one, not so well. And um, on that particular one, I was doing an entry into the water, doing a backward roll from the you know side of the boat. Mm-hmm. And my mask came off. And I was just all disoriented, discombobulated, and really wondered, like, oh, my God, can I, can I do this now? Because I was just so nervous and scared and all that. And when I got back on the... Um, on the boat, the dive master, who happened to be a woman, said to me that that was the best thing that could have happened. And her point was that from now on, you will double and triple check to make sure that your equipment is working well. And it really helped to change my relationship with fear and my understanding of fear and how it's really an invitation to open yourself to curiosity and to explore. And so for me, that's not necessarily a, a quote, if you will, but the lesson is when you are afraid, don't shut down, actually engage that fear and ask it, what is it asking you to pay attention to? What is it that you want to, what is it that you want me to do or you want me to know? And let that be the thing that then drives your action as opposed to what we typically do is let the fear kind of shut us down and our bodies get tight, et cetera. So the life lesson is everybody is afraid of something. So it's not about avoiding the fear, but when that fear happens, how do you engage in it? And are you engaging it from a healthy space, which to me includes being curious and being open to exploring, or are you letting it shut you down? Yeah. It just brings me back to sort of, principles that I've learned in coaching, which is, you know, whether it's fear or, or negative beliefs or like, what's the positive intention behind it? Cause it's, right. you know, there's usually something, whether we're trying to, you know, the fear is cause you know, we want to stay in a safe space or we want to be protected or like, what's the positive intention and then how do you work through that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So last question, Jaquette is what does it mean to you to live your best life? You know, I think where I am right now, it means being joyful and recognizing that there's a price to that joy. And what do I mean by that? So, you know, I've mentioned my mother briefly. I mentioned that she died. She died in August of 2014. And that did a lot in terms of just reorienting my whole identity because I was a single child. Uh, my mother was my last living relative. We were really close. And like all of that goes with that. And then the man I was with for four and a half years and who I thought I was going to marry, he and I broke up not too long after my mother died. And then he died. So Ugh. I'm coming off of a period of experiencing profound losses and profound grief and I am now, I've now reached a point where I feel joyful again, but there's a price that comes with that joy. And, um, it just makes me want to appreciate this space even more and recognize that when something else happens, that's, you know, going to be devastating because it's just life and we can't avoid it. 
it reminds me that eventually I will be strong again. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think just this idea of you're going to be okay. (laughs) Even if it's eventually, you're going to be okay. And so I think that that's what helps me to live my best life. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Jaquette. Thank you so very much for having me. I appreciate it. 